HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Per Anders and Lotta Jorgensen, Fool Magazine, Sweden. Uh, I was born and raised in a very small town called Ustad, which is now famous for the Detective Wallander uh, series. Uh, and a uh, small city on the very edge of the well, Swedish Baltic Ocean. And I was born up north Sweden in a small town called Hannesand, but I've also been living in Lapland as well in Sweden, so I've been living in many different cities. Give us a little background about Swedish culture. I mean, what are some traditions related back towards food and cuisine? Food and cuisine traditions. Well, I almost feel like going fetching our latest issue with Magnus <laughs> Nilsson describing the whole Swedish history from way, way, way BC and all the way forward. But modern food culture. Good question. We really... We really don't have one. That's the, the thing. Like uh, Klaus Meyer described here, we I was basically fed on the same diet as him. I, uh, not I didn't become that fat, but uh, even my mother she was she was a cook, but she really didn't want me in the kitchen, and she didn't like my interest in food, and uh, she was a victim like of women going out working, which is a good thing. But in the late 60s, she we turned, in, turned to, f- not fast food, but processed food in a way. And she stopped cooking. So that was my childhood. The Swedish tradition of food is, uh, I mean, everybody knows about gravad lax and uh, pickled herring and things like that. And smorgasbord. That's the traditional, traditional Swedish food, I would say. 
But um, the modern Swedish food scene has been evolving now uh, with a couple of really interesting chefs. We have Magnus Nilsson of Fairviken and we have Björn Fransen from Fransen. Before it was Fransen Limburg. I'm, I'm saying, yeah. almost saying uh, it again. And, and a few more. And a few more. Yeah, of course. Mm. But also you remember Swedish... It's you know this region is comprised of you. It's 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 a very small region, so it's actually as I would more speak about like the Nordic or Scandinavian yeah. food heritage. I would say because we are so <laughs> intervened, we're so kind of tight together in a way. Yeah, but the food scenes are different from in Finland, Norway, Absolutely. Denmark, and Sweden. It's completely different kinds of food. I would say mm-hmm. so. Yeah. I mean, there are similarities. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the terrain itself changes. So yeah. I mean, speak to us a little bit about the land of Sweden. Does it go from tropical to, you know, tundra? Well, oh, not, no. Not, not tropical, <laughs> unfortunately. But we are an illustration of that. Lotta, she, she was born and raised up really in the very north of Sweden. And I was re- raised as far south as you probably can get. So it, it, it's like worlds apart up there very few things grow and it's a lot of snow and you well the vegetables are different of course and people up up north Sweden they hunt they fish they forage I mean that's part of everyday life to actually be doing that and um and down south, you're, it's, that's a food-producing region with a lot of farmers, huge farmlands, and and uh, it's uh, and also with with cattle. Mm. But what, what we're trying to do now in Sweden is getting back to the uh, what once was before we ruined it in nineteen fifty six, where everything was supposed to be efficient and streamlined as everywhere else but now we're trying to regain this the history well our food heritage and food history in a way trying to resurrect things trying to correct things that's what we are in the process of right now so let's talk about a place like Fabrica yes. explain what that restaurant is and what it means to contemporary Sweden well let's remember that Fabrican it's a tiny restaurant with a huge impact, I would say. It's 12 seats, I would say, and it's, it's, it's more than... It's actually, it's more like, like a project, almost, what Magnus is doing. And, but it's also very, very inspiring to many people and shows what can be done. It's extremely unique. You go there, mm. you stay in the middle of nowhere, and uh, you're going for a meal that starts at 7 o'clock at night. Everybody has to sit down at the same time. It's a, it's a theatre. Um, You're part of a play. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the produce is really, I mean, it's amazing. And the cooking is uh, extraordinary. What is the cuisine that he serves? What, is the, what are some of the dishes? Some of the dishes, I mean, one of the most... Um, Photographed ones, I would say, or celebrated ones, is um, a scallop made in its own shell. And that is a beautiful dish. Mm. And it's served with uh, fir tree branches and... uh, A bit on fire smoking underneath. it's, it's, All his food is deceptively simple. Like, to me, all great food. It looks very, very simple, Mm. honest... 
and uh, but it's in the quality of the produce and the way he treats it it's very intelligent cooking I would say but would you call it Swedish? <sighs> I call it Swedish. absolutely I would say I mean it's Swedish but 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 the, but the scallops are Norwegian but it's not classical Swedish I wouldn't say classical no, Swedish it's, it's modern Swedish he, he has he went to France and worked at La Strance with Pascal Bobo for instance and he um, he takes a lot from there from France I would say his inspiration of the combination and the plating of dishes and it's 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 not it's very very um, it's not over elaborate in any way it's very thought through it's like taking how many things can you take away and how can you concentrate flavors or components according to season in a very intelligent way it's very daring yeah and, and he's a daring guy and he's doing things in a, in, a, in a great way I actually work with him now because um, he's opening a charcuterie factory a small one but it's, it, it is a factory so he's going to make charcuteries Swedish classic charcuteries and uh, sell them and then he has this idea that he's going to sell them in his county only but if there is enough maybe to the northern Sweden and if it's even more to the rest of Sweden so that's his idea with it I'm going to make shark trees and sell them in my county so if Magnus was here it, it just seems very funny that the majority of people that I've spoken to today uh, though they're bringing their cuisine and their stories uh, to worlds of flavor it's more about being at the destination how important is destination ambiance, terroir to the majority of contemporary chefs? It's everything, I would say. Yeah, it's everything and it's also the that what makes it difficult for some of them because yes. they might be in remote areas. Uh, but it's everything to, it to actually, taste and produce. To me, it's er, it, like it's almost everything, and that's what makes it interesting. Because we're working now on our fourth issue. It's almost finished, and it's about Italy, and Italian gastronomy, and traveling Italy, meeting people. It's so evident. Like even the simplest tomato dish, uh, you know, it's depending on the tomato from the place with the oil as is local and people say that Italian food is easy to, to, to cook it might be but the limitation is the product you have to have this cutting edge product or of course you can go to a supermarket and buy the tomato and the rubbery mozzarella and some cheap olive oil and you will end up with something that looks maybe close to the real thing but taste wise no way. But that is the beauty of the Italian cuisine because Italian cuisine is really based upon produce from the region, extremely regional. It has been like that for thousands of years. And that's unique, I think. Let's talk about Fool Magazine. <laughs> because it, it wasn't always a part of your lives. Why was it concepted? Why, why did you need to feed yourselves with that kind of exploration? It's passion, I think. We really wanted to do a food magazine that was different from the food magazines that were around. And um, it's not something that we make money out of. Uh, we're doing it out of passion. Absolutely. It's an, it kind of quite, when we met, Lotta was the art director of a very good uh, gastronomic magazine in Sweden. And she wanted to uh, work with photographers that didn't really do food in a traditional way. And so 
she phoned me up and asked me to do food and I said no twice and then you convinced me and we started photographing food and then and people and then we became a couple and almost immediately we had this idea about creating a food magazine a gastronomic magazine of our own because already back then 10 years ago we felt there was a need for kind of a product that would we could do our vision I would say of what a gastronomic magazine could be uh, forgetting about well not ad sales because we need ads and we want to be re- but forgetting about things like the limitations or trying to like you can't do this you can't do that you can't put a bla- well a serious guy in, in glasses and a black and white uh, you know picture on the cover of course we can we can't do 20 pages of something yes we can that's very much about believing ourselves and doing what we yeah now you sound like Obama but uh, <laughs> But the thing is, yes, we can. <laughs> but but um, um, it's also about that we have met so many fantastic people during the years, traveling around and working for other magazines doing things. Mm-hmm. And we felt that these people, they didn't get the credit, credit they really deserved. So mm-hmm. we wanted to do it in a publication like full. Who were some of your first subjects that you reached out to? Oh my! Yeah, uh, we, we we have this. I would say collective. We have, well, there's so many people we know out there. It's not only chefs, it's like producers. It's and we we keep on learning. Every day is like we're learning something new, and every new travel, every meeting leads to something new, new discovery, and that's what's interesting. So maybe I don't know. One of the first ones. We did Magnus. Magnus. Yeah, for, for Fool. Yeah, now, now. Yeah. But, you know, all this starts 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Even, I would say, like, going... To me, a really eye-opener was Muguritz. When we went to Spain, uh, Muguritz just opened. And they were surprised, who are these guys from Sweden coming here? And uh, we just met. So we were shooting them for, for Swedish Gourmet magazine back then. Right. And that was, like, the first time I realized... Ah, oh, this is so interesting. These people are so. And then we met, we know Mugritz and Andoni and all the staff that very very well. I mean, been like following each other in a way. Mm. And then all of a sudden we felt like mm, these people. We need to tell their story. And we did that in the first issue about what Mugritz really was about the creative team, how they work, and all that. It was so much fun because we were there the first time that had been open for two years, I think. We were having dinner and uh, we were served by servants who didn't really, they didn't speak any English at all. They sp- spoke Basque, basically, putting plates in front of us without even doing presentation or anything. But And um, the food looked amazing. We had never really seen anything like no. that before. That it, was it was totally fantastic. And then we have been following them for for eleven years, I think, and eating there almost every year. Every year we have, and sometimes even twice or three times, and uh, to see how they have evolved it has been extremely interesting to see. So, fool isn't necessarily about trends or the, the the fleeting restaurant or chef it's about investing your time in a project or mm-hmm. in a person for a yeah. long period of yeah. time absolutely because full 
has a shelf life that is really long. I hope. Mm, mm, that's our goal, at least. We're not outspoken, but it's a goal that you can pick up number one and still feel it's relevant today. And uh, but still, I think we are extremely trendy. We are, of course, in many ways, we're extremely trend sensitive. But um, I don't know. We try to be ahead of the curve in a way, but it's we are almost like creating our own curve. I would say, <laughs> trying to to to. We trust ourselves and our judgment so much, and we uh, we have to in order to be unique. It's a bit like floating sideways. I think. Yeah, it's, it's because of also that we, we're making full out of passion. And before, when we have been working, being in at the publishing house, you're sitting at the office every day and all the journalists and photographers, they're having all the fun. You don't really get to meet all these people. And we want to do that and let our... Um, how do you say it? Our sense of these people that we're meeting come across in our magazine. That is extremely important to us mm. to do mm. it this way. And go and don't be. We're not afraid to fail. That's very very important. We're not afraid to to take a chance of fail or like Italy now. We went on some missions, win or lose, and they turned out to be real winners. And they will be in the magazine, and that was very, very fortunate. And you know, one meeting leads to something else, and it really is like jumping from well stones in the water. And sometimes you slip and <laughs> you fall into the water, but that might not be a good thing after all, a b- yeah. bad thing after all. <laughs> um, let's talk about that entry point into Italy as a whole, um, and this isn't going to air until. January through March of cool. next year, so you Perfect. can talk about the Italy issue a little bit further if you'd like. Yeah. Um, how? I mean, where in Italy did you start, and where did that journey take you? Well, first, it's not only Italy; it's about Italian gastronomy, and it's uh, all over the world. So, it's Italian gastronomy from Brazil. It's from Australia among some places and then of course it's Italy and, and we, the US and US of yeah. course yeah sorry uh, <laughs> it comes so natural to us uh, and where did it start I think we did almost everything from the small island of Pantelleria just off Africa up to uh, Milan no even to the Alps I think we went yeah to the Alps Chris, really crisscrossing because I had this naive dream about this Italian issue, it was like, oh, we go, we rent a car somewhere in Sicily, and we drive all the way up and you crisscross. And of course, it didn't work out that way. It was more like mentally it did, but um, you're well. always a romantic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Italian side. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we're doing this. Um, we are our cover story is uh, Massimo Bottura, uh, Osteria Francescana. And uh, it's written by Lisa Abend, who is here now, because we really wanted to do him in a different angle. But um, And uh, we have shot him extremely different as well. And his staff. Uh, we, we, and his staff. And his we, wife. We, we have made um, <laughs> a, a fashion shoot out of this whole thing. Yeah. It's totally... Insane. insane. <laughs> it's, pro- it's probably one of the most insane photo shoots 
involving a restaurant and a chef, and hopefully still with focus. It's uh, set at a castle, and the castle is... Um, well, they're in the process of renovating it, so it's kind of worn down. And we're taking a lot of inspiration from Fellini, the classic Fellini movies. And uh, we work with a great stylist. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was kind of a big, our biggest, uh, biggest budget operation, I would say. And Massimo, when we were finished after two days shooting, he said, this is one of the most fun shoots I've ever been to. The Massimo way. Hey guys, this is the most fun photo shoot I ever done. <laughs> well, let's talk about styling because you are the only photographer, or are there other artists that contribute to Fool? There are. Uh, For this issue, we will actually have uh, a couple of other photographers working with us. I mean, PA shooting a lot of the shots for full is also an economical uh, point to to be able to afford to do this magazine yes photographers they well require huge salaries no, no that's not the thing but it's also a creative thing uh, like Lotta said we so much enjoy doing this and I have loads of well it's a pity sitting at a desk seeing stuff being done that I think feel I could have done and maybe done better and you know ah that's what we want to do we want to express ourselves but it's a bit problem a bit of a problem finding photographers like you when you were at Swedish Gourmet back like 17 years ago we, we, we tried to find photographers with a different background that not necessarily shoot food just because we are a, a quote gastronomic magazine unquote uh, they photographers tend to send us images of food and that we don't really want we want somebody who can, with a unique language image language and we don't really care if they can shoot food uh, they rather do like great portraits or whatever so we're looking very hard for people to you know work with that don't really fit the box how would you explain PA shoots food differently oh that is a different question and extremely difficult um, I think um, you always use he always uses natural light only and um, it looks kind of funny when we're shooting the pictures because it's, it looks like um, we have uh, some cardboards with us in black and white just moving them around and it looks uh, kind of strange and all the chefs uh, when they see us when we're working like that they are wondering how will this end and it always ends beautiful but I think it's um, the approach to the food and um, Yeah, it's really hard to say. I don't know. I can't really explain. And why, why take something so vibrant and colorful and strip it out and make it black and white? We haven't done that many black and white shots, though. But we did a few in the last issue from, 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 um, from Japan. But that was uh, because that place, Miyamasu, was um, like traveling back in time. So it felt right to do them black and white, almost, those photographs. It was, it was very hard 
I think we did like maybe five, six different variations from Miyamasu, this uh, fantastic place in Japan. I was not content with what came out. It didn't, it didn't feel Miyamasu. It didn't look Miyamasu. So I almost had to like rip the files apart in a way and put them together again to, to reach this kind of the, 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 the feeling of Miyamasu, this mysterious place in the woods that's um, perfect but still imperfect in a way. It was very, very challenging to show in images, I think. So, talking about being a photographer that doesn't shoot food, you also use influences that aren't food, like Fellini. What other kind of artistic and visual cues do you take? Wow. I... Uh, I'm, it's kind of depressing because all the people I really love, all the photographers I really, really love, they're dead now. They're not with us anymore. The people I really, really w- would like to work with, uh, like, you know, the classics like Irving Penn, Avedon, and so many of the even older ones, uh, you know, that went away a much long time ago. But it's, it's, that is why it's hard to find. It's, it's like food. We're all looking too much at each other we're copying each other too much photographers as well like all the, the chefs look at this the blogs and the images and they try to some chefs they are unique and they manage to to do unique things without looking too much at each other it's really difficult to be innovative now i think yes. in food photography and I think probably that's why we're doing the magazine because we're not so much innovative maybe in the food photography, may I say, but we are innovative in how to make a food magazine more. Let's talk about that same idea uh, of social media and everyone being connected and related back to you know what's going on here today. How hard is it? How hard is it to be unique these days? Or is that even the point? We never think about being unique, I think. We think about... We just look at something and we... we well, we speak about it kind of... And we, I think we look very much into ourselves without thinking about being unique. We just do stuff we, we like. And hopefully with our background, our collected, collective kind of, I don't know, experiences and everything, we are unique. It doesn't mean that a single image has to be unique. It's more... Is unique in different way. The product itself, I hope. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about restaurants and how restaurants can be unique and dishes. Is um, I mean, you see all these images everywhere, and it's so easy to copy. But it's not so easy to copy uh, an experience, the atmosphere of being somewhere. And we we work a lot with uh, restaurants as well, doing as consultants uh, and um, sometimes we say that oh you should do like this think like this no we can't do that the the chef say because he's doing that or I don't want to copy anything like that but it, but it's hard to be unique in a world that is so global through internet mm. I think and um, but it's on also it comes down to talent, really. All mm. these talents that are out there for some fantastic people, and they yeah. are unique. Mm. I, I I could not easily, but I could do things very very complicated, 
in every every shoot. I could do the portraits, the most complicated thing ever. I could do food in a very, very complicated way. And I spoke to a chef, very good friend of mine in London about this, about, about cooking, how to be innovative, and the pressure to be innovative in a way. And also we, I spoke about specifically about food photography, how to be inventive. And we all, we both agreed it's, it's the same thing. Do we really have to be innovative just for the sake of being innovative? Mm, not really. We, it's down to some kind of other quality as well. If you have that quality, it's 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 good enough. Well, not even good enough. It's it's that is the quality. It's important to, I mean, being in a restaurant, you can't put an iPad uh, on on the table and show a movie, and and uh, and without thought behind it, you need to have proper thought, an idea why you're doing all these things. Or just cook very good food. And there's another reason about, about the magazine, how it looks. And you, maybe I'm not the right person to explain this. You should do it, Lotta, but mm-hmm. I'll try. It's, it's very easy to design a magazine, not easy maybe, but you can design a magazine that's super cool and not readable at all. And that even obscures the content in a way. Yeah, full is is kind of boring in design, I would say. But it's readable, and and people contact us all the time and say that it's fantastic. I'd read food f- full from from the first page to the last. I read everything, and I usually don't really read these magazines. I just leaf through them and look. But this magazine, I'm reading, and that's the best best. Um, Uh, what do you call it? Feed, well, that's the best feedback. Feedback you can ever get. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not gloss over innovation. It's obviously a very big part of photography, design, mm-hmm. and, and cooking. Um, what are some of the more innovative things you've seen around the world in kitchens that chefs do? And then how do you translate that into the magazine? Oh, that's a very good question. The m- most innovative thing that we came across recently is in Italy, actually. It's an Italian chef from Sardinia, and he's based in Sardinia as well. His name is Roberto Pezza, and he makes cheese, excellent cheese. And he, and no one really, no chefs really makes chief, uh, cheese nowadays. And... Uh, in Sardinia, time has stopped. So people, farmers and people everywhere in Sardinia are still making cheese. They are making their own olive oil and mirto uh, uh, kind of liquor that they drink. And that's why he's making cheese. But that's innovative, I think. Mm, I agree. It's uh, You have to almost go to a place like Sardinia and travel backwards in time to see the future in a way. Because a guy, a chef, making cheese just because they always done it, um, it's it's fascinating. What kind of equipment do you shoot with? Do you shoot with modern or do you shoot with, you know, Hasselblads? Uh... You should see. I have a huge collection of cameras. I never sell anything. Um, so I have like everything from Hasselblad to Mamiya six seven six forty five. I have Canon. I have you know, m- medium format everything, and. I shoot 
mainly nowadays I shoot with digital Canon and Fuji. Fuji I really, really like. And uh, then, of course, I have some medium format stuff I use when I have the possibility. But when do you know which format pairs with, you know, each subject? Well, that's, that's a great question, which I used to ask myself uh, before when there was both, you know, the choice between medium format or whatever, you know. Nowadays, you can, like, tweak every file into something else. So it's a bit irrelevant, unfortunately, but I, tr I try to think. Because sometimes doing... Uh, I like to challenge myself. So choosing an equipment that challenge me, challenges me a bit, it, it's good for me. Uh, but there are no real uh, rules to it. It's very, very uh, down to, I don't know, something else, <laughs> the feeling of the moment, maybe. You know, you get to travel and see how chefs cook, how people respond to that. But have you seen a trend on how people change the way they eat? Diners, non-restaurant perspective. It's different in different parts of the world, I would say. In Sweden, people now tend to dine out more than we have done before. And uh, But if you go to a country like Spain or Italy, they've always been dining out. Or Thailand, for instance. Yeah. I can't really see that it changes. I'm not that good at it, but for instance, Thailand that we went to and did a profile on uh, David Thompson, the incredible Thai chef from Australia who's been there over 30 years now. Um, they are changing their eating habits, definitely. Moving away from the traditional way of cooking that's very labor-intensive, it takes a lot of time, to more convenient fast food. And... Um, That's, that's a big change. But in this food scene now, I, I love the first episode of, of Portlandia and the chicken scene. <laughs> I can't even speak about it because I'm laughing thinking about it. But that part of the dining scene has changed a lot. People ask about things, so where it's from, is it organic, how is it made, and all these things, because there's an interest in food and food, uh, TV, and uh, celebrity chefs mm. and uh, buying but, cooking books but I don't know if it changes has really changed how people eat I'm not sure no, but it remains to be seen I think yeah the real impact of this but it's also part of, I mean we're from Sweden and We have been living in London f for a while as well. And, and in Sweden and in, in England, you don't really have a culinary history. And we're creating it now, as they are doing in Denmark as well. We're creating a new history. I don't we haven't seen the end of this yet. No. It's going to be extremely interesting to see how it is going to be in 10 years. In Sweden, we are still in the process of you know, getting food trucks in some aspects we're like 10 years behind the US or whatever because of the regulations and everything so some things are takes time to catch up next issue do you already have an idea in place or does that come out of feedback you mean after the Italian yeah. issue oh yes we, we have know. we know exactly what to do 
Absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's tailored. It's, no, it's, no, no, it's really, it's going to be, it's going to be, if you think this is dark, you, ha- you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be uh, very kind of looking at the darker sides of life, maybe, I think we can yeah. say. Yeah. Not saying too much. Absolutely. Oh, I like the intrigue. <laughs> it's like a Hitchcock. But, yeah. No, that, that's the opposite of, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, for you to speak poorly of you know gourmet sweden but how did they used to set up a shoot it was the same it was a protocol it wasn't really outside of the box oh i mean the photographers i mean long time ago uh, everybody was working in a studio with flash some used a lamp but they were rare and um, the look of the food was completely different but this is also, I mean, part of that type of photography is still going on. In certain segments, yes, definitely, it does. Like if you if you pick up, there was a magazine in Sweden called like Alt on Math, which is about everything about on food. My mother, we subscribed to it, and I well, actually they publicized public. Uh, a a picture like two weeks ago that could have been taken from my childhood, and I, I had a tweet about it because it was identical to what I when I read a magazine when I was ten years old. So in certain segments, nothing has happened whatsoever. Mm. And uh, in high end cooking, yes, and high end kind of photography of high end cooking, it has. But we we. It's. I always say, people asking me, it's so easy to shoot great food that's plated in an intelligent way, and um, I try to work with these people because it gives me so much, you know, head start. Rather than working with people who can't plate, who can't, you know, do things, don't have an idea, because many of these chefs that we, or most of them that we feature, they have very strong ideas. And the old style food photography that is still going on, of course, is um, is that you you take a picture of a dish. That's what you do. But what I think is important is to take a picture of the food and and try to let the smell, the sounds from the restaurant, and um, your overall feeling come across in that picture of the food. And that's the big challenge. Instead of just putting a white plate and perfect lighting, and that's that. Well, you know how you were saying uh, you hate seeing food portfolios? Talk to me about some of your favorite photos that aren't food-related and why. You start. I can't. I have to think. Oh, I can easily. There are a few photographers I really, really like and really admire. And I'm lucky enough to own, well, we are a few photographs. It's, I love Anton Cobain's photography. I really do. I think it's it's the closest to what I like. That's uh, kind of this imperfection and not being scared, working with, you know, with small equipment, which still can produce magnificent images. And we're lucky enough to own a few of them. And I would say uh, that's like his image of Miles Davis in a hotel room in Amsterdam, uh, which is basically 
Nothing. Just portrait of a man. But it's it's so well done, so well executed. Uh, that's what I like, removing things in a way from an image, concentrating. One of the most astonishing pictures I ever received as, a, as an art director is actually a food picture by P.A. And uh, <laughs> he, he, shot, he shot dessert. And when it arrived... It was at this time when you didn't do digital photography at all. So it was a print. And it arrived in... Uh, and we opened the envelope. And I was screaming, Oh my God, what has he done? So it was a dessert. And then it, this bee was flying above <laughs> the dessert. <laughs> and that was actually happening because it wasn't uh, a Photoshop thing. It was... The actual was, uh, shot. It just, it just <laughs> came and I managed to press the shutter and uh, was there. It's, but I don't know. No, come on. No, I don't, but that was I, so much fun. Yeah, it made us no. happy when we but, received but, but, it. But, but speaking, <laughs> you must have some images that you love that's not food. Yeah, I think one of the most astonishing images ever is uh, the Vietnamese girl running from the Nepal. There are yeah. a lot of incredible yeah. images, and maybe we looked at when doing this magazine. We well, not looked, but uh, subconsciously, I think we thought about Life magazine being able to bring loads of photography in an interesting way, and we thought about you know the text of New Yorker, uh, long and comprehensive and well, well, well executed, yeah. and of course fashion magazines like Vogue Italia too. We kind of melt that together subconsciously, I think. But it's something about that image with the Vietnamese girl running towards the photographer who is shot it. I forgot the name of the photographer. But anyway, she's naked. And if that picture would have been taken today, the editor would have not published it because she's naked running towards the camera. And that is something that is extremely, it's an extraordinary picture. There's so many, so many images that I doubt would be, well, published today. Like, also going back to Vietnam, to, well, the US learned a lesson there in PR, like a police chief of Saigon shooting a guy on an open on the street. I don't think that would make the first, well, the cover, well, page of New York Times today. I doubt it very much. So what kind of food images aren't being shown to that that should be shown food images food images oh god mm. I think anything goes yeah I think so too because mm. you know showing a slaughter mm. showing showing someone harvest an mm. animal yeah. is still slight faux pas yeah. slight taboo in, in, in the food media world yet it we is. are able to talk about Hobie's butchery Mm. Why do you think it hasn't? It's for the same reason I jokingly suggested to uh, the Swedish Meat Organization. If you want people to really, uh, you need transparency. You need to, well, people have to to see things and uh, that you do things well. And why don't install cameras in in, in slaughterhouses? Really, to, to to see that thing. So you can go there and check it out, and they're well doing things well and probably not mistreating animals they were like oh, no 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 no. people don't want that but it should be well it should be there visible if you want to have a look and uh, to ensure quality in a way and transparency 
It was kind of crazy because at Mad Food Camp, uh, the last thing that they did was um, themed Death Happens. And it was um, Alex Atala. He was uh, on the scene. He was holding a chicken. And then he raised his hand and did the gladiator thing, thumbs up, down. And the audience started to scream, kill. So he killed the chicken. And then all these people sitting there, they, some of them thought that the chicken wasn't dead, even though he broke the chicken's neck. Because if you're killing a chicken, it's, it continues to move. It doesn't just stop moving because of uh, the spasm in the, in, the, in the muscles. And that was absurd because you had all these chefs in this room and it seemed like they didn't know about this killing. I don't know. I walked out of the room actually because I, I, I felt bad when people started to scream kill, kill. Uh, and... Um, I think Alex, he should have said, people, be, be conscious here. Say no to the killing. And, uh, because the other theme of, of Matt was also guts. So he should have had the guts to tell the people not to tell him to kill the chicken. But it was interesting. Death happens. And people don't know how. Part of the dark place you're going in the next magazine, I assume. A little bit. Nah. We'll see. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you want to wrap up with in regards to the conference? Uh, interesting people you've met, things you've tasted. Regard to the conference? Oh God, I just started. I think this is great fun. I love doing this speaking because every time we do an interview, we speak to people, uh, we learn something about ourselves, and you get more focused. Um, we met so many great people we had breakfast with uh, Nathan Mirvold this morning uh, which is um, kind of it's kind of cool <laughs> you you walk out in the car and said okay we just have breakfast with the kind of you know third guy of Microsoft okay and you want to meet us that's cool and you know that's interesting and he's doing an amazing thing with his books, completely different from what we are doing, extremely interesting in another way. Mm. That's what's great about these conferences, where you actually meet people like that, and you, you learn things from each other, hopefully. Mm. And, um, yeah. So what, what's more important, meeting the people or tasting the food? Meeting the people, I think. Meeting the people, yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. Food... It's just food. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.